I'm Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway, and you're listening to Politics Brief from WNYC, bringing you the very best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear segments from my show, as well as The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and The New Yorker Radio Hour, plus the work of the award-winning WNYC Newsroom, which is following all the local New York and New Jersey races. Welcome to Politics Brief from WNYC. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Now we conclude our fall election series, 30 Issues in 30 Days. As we've done in every election since 2004, we've created a safe space, or tried to, to talk about an issue a day that's outside the headlines, heavily focused on policy because so much political coverage in the media is about the horse race or attacks on each candidate's character. Beginning back on September 24th, Our 30 topics this year have ranged from bail reform as an issue in the New York State Senate races to Betsy DeVos making it harder to prove sexual assault by college students to Democratic and Republican versions of family and medical leave to how Trump and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict intersect to yesterday's debate on how to fight income inequality. We've avoided things like the Russia investigation as being off to the side of what most directly affects Americans' lives, and Trump raising birthright citizenship as being more a distraction and a get-out-the-vote tactic than an issue that anyone might act on regardless of who controls Congress. We hope we've helped inform you as an American or a resident of Greater Gotham, even if you came into the series knowing exactly who you'll be voting for next Tuesday. But one thing that became painfully clear along the way was that in large measure, the two parties don't just disagree on the issues, they're talking about different issues altogether. The obvious example, Trump is talking about immigration as the most important thing. Democrats are talking about health care. Now, David Brooks, who these days is an anti-Trump but still conservative New York Times columnist, wrote an interesting column called The Materialist Party how the Democrats failed to take on Trumpism. The premise was that Trump and other populists around the world have transformed the central political conversation from one that was about big government versus small government to the one today centered around ethnic nationalism versus diversity and pluralism, with their central argument being that the good, decent people of the heartland are being threatened by immigrants and other foreigners while the corrupt elites do nothing, as Brooks characterized their position. And Brooks suggests that while the right has thrown down this moral, cultural, and ideological gauntlet in this profound way, the Democrats in the midterm elections have utterly failed to respond. He says even though GOP nationalism is mostly unpopular, the Democrats need to engage it and lay out a competing moral vision, not just fall back on health care, health care, health care, or the specific social justice grievances of specific identity groups or taxes. So that's David Brooks's take, just one point of view, but an interesting one on the two parties this year campaigning on different issues, not just different opinions. So for this final edition of 30 Issues in 30 Days, we'll call it a 30 Issues Theory of Everything. What do the issues presented by both sides in this campaign season say about the state of this country and the state of the world? With me now are three guests, Eddie Glaude, Jr., Professor of Religion and African-American Studies Department Chair at Princeton. His... uh, He's the author of books, including Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves 
the American soul. His latest piece in Time Magazine is Politicians Can't Stop Hate, We Must Change America Ourselves. Also, Charlie Sykes, former conservative talk radio host in Milwaukee, contributor now to the Weekly Standard and MSNBC, that's an unusual combination for the past anyway, maybe not for this year, blogger at thecontrarianconservative.com and author of How the Right Lost Its Mind, now out in paperback, and Alexis Grinnell, founder of Pythia Public, a Democratic consulting firm here in New York and Daily News opinion contributor. Her piece this week was called Farrakhan's Words Matter Too. It's about time the left universally denounced his anti-Semitism. Eddie, Alexis, and Charlie, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Thank Brian. you. It's a pleasure. How much do you each see the two parties running this year on different sets of issues, not just different positions on the issues? And how unusual do you see that in terms of of recent history, Eddie Glaude? Well, I, I mean, I see them running, you know, I see one party appealing to hatred and fears and the other party trying to speak to uh, the material conditions of everyday ordinary folk. I think you opened the lead with uh, with David Brooks's uh, op-ed, and I think that's a false opposition. In so many ways, uh, the, the undercurrent of European populism or right-wing, you know, neo-fascism is in some ways the, the, the material reality of everyday ordinary people that insiders and outsiders actually map onto. Uh, in some ways, Brian, what you discussed last, you know, yesterday, map, map onto who's winning economically and who's losing economically. Um, and if you, you know, just look in Brazil, for example, if you look at Bolsonaro, who, who supported him? You see rich, rich elites uh, supporting, you know, throwing democracy in, in, in the garbage the, can. The new Trumpian uh, everyday, authoritarian elected leader of uh, Brazil, uh, yes. Yeah, he's worse than Trump in, in so many ways. And if you, it maps, his support maps onto the kind of deep economic inequality uh, that we see across the globe. And so part of this opposition between the moral argument and the materialist argument is a false opposition. Uh, and what I think we have to do is to say that if we have a world that's fundamentally organized along the lines of greed, where people pursue uh, their self-interest in such a way in such a way that they literally fray the fabric of of of, of, of society, then we have to offer a counter vision of how we can live in community together without a complete infringement on folks' ability to pursue their dreams. Charlie Sykes, um, how? So, uh, go ahead. Go Sorry, ahead, you want to finish the thought? No, no, no. That's it. That's it. Charlie, how much do you agree with? David Brooks' theory that the Trump nationalists here and in Europe have transformed the fundamental moral conversation to be about insiders versus outsiders, and the Democrats have failed to respond, focusing instead on materialist issues like health care and taxes. Well, I, I, I concur in part and dissent in part. Um, there's no question about it that uh, this is this is a campaign that reveals the two parties that have completely different worldviews. Uh, it is beyond tribal. Um, where I would dissent is the the issue of of healthcare is clearly going to play a significant role in the the midterm elections. Uh, you know, perhaps you wrote that uh, before. I think you've had the last minute turn where the the Republicans under Trump took this really very very dark nativist turn, and uh, and Democrats have really pounded 
on issues like pre-existing conditions, which I think is playing for them. But but I think his larger point is correct, is that we are really seeing a clash of worlds, just not just different worldviews, but, you know, these alternative realities that we've talked about before, different sets of issues, uh, different perspectives uh, between the two political parties. And I don't think that, that either party has really figured out how this is going to play in modern politics. Uh, you know, is the Republican Party really going to be able to run on the sort of the fear and division, um, you know, stoking the anxieties about, uh, you know, a small caravan of people moving north? Is that really uh, what the Republican Party wants to run on? And have Democrats really figured out um, that it's really not just about the economy, stupid. I mean, think about it. This morning we had more good jobs numbers. The economy appears to be working relatively well. Not necessarily for everybody, but rather than running on the economy, which you would expect, what is Donald Trump running on? He is running on uh, birthright citizenship, uh, the invasion of the caravan, bringing diseases, etc., et, et um, and uh, talking about having members of the U.S. military possibly shooting uh, unarmed protesters. Yeah. Really? Alexis, for you as someone who has actually consulted Democratic candidates in the past, I don't know if you're doing it this year, um, how different is this year in terms of the two parties running on different sets of issues or anywhere else you'd like to enter the conversation? Sure. Um, so I agree with Professor Glott. I also read David Brooks's column and thought he had offered a false dichotomy, especially since right after the election, so much of what Brooks wrote at the time was that the Democrats had focused too much on race and identity politics, quote unquote, because somehow mm -hmm. identity politics doesn't ex include himself because the position of white men is neutral. Of course, being a white man is an identity as well, but don't tell that to David Brooks. Um, and so I had a hard time reading that column and taking it all terribly seriously, especially since the all the hand-wringing we experienced after the election about how Democrats had neglected the concerns of working-class Americans, read white people, um, that, that that was the real reason we'd lost, as opposed to the fact that Trump had not only played to uh, centuries of white grievance politics, but had also you know, there had been outside influences in the election that really had nothing to do with the way in which either party had constructed an argument, which is actually significant. And we see those forces at play again. I'm particularly concerned about the outrageous levels of voter suppression going on in this country that is sort of uh, right below the surface um, and not insignificant when we talk about what outcomes will be. So we have to, within this analysis of how each party is positioning itself, also understand the way in which people are actually going to be able to express that uh, their positions at the polls. So I'm very focused on that. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast. We'll be right back after a quick break. Eddie, your article in Time this week, Politicians Can't Stop Hate, We Must Change America Ourselves. How much is that to say all the enthusiasm to vote, especially among women and people of color, is not enough to address the central issue? Oh no 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 no! I think I think you know the enthusiasm is 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 actually an indication of of the kind of energy that is necessary to to take back the country. You know I think we have to be otherwise, and 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 we can't look to politicians uh, to lead us into uh, uh, this a different way of being in the world. Look, part of what I was trying to say in the piece uh, was was something very straightforward, and that is for most of my my political life. Uh, um, I've I've lived in a in a context in which race has always been the serpent lurking underneath American politics. 
the dawning of of the age of Reagan, for example, you know, I remember people watching Reagan uh, at the Neshoba County Fair, uh, you know, declare his his commitment to states' rights uh, just seven miles away from where Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were killed. I remember uh, in '88 George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, uh, and his Willie Horton ad. I remember in 1990 Jesse Helms and 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 the and the Harvey Gantt uh, campaign. Right, race has always been a part. Of, of our conversation, except, you know, it's been coded, it's been dog whistled. Uh, what Donald Trump has done, just as he's, and I say this in the piece, just as he's kind of thrown the post-World War II consensus uh, into the trash bin for his America First foreign policy, he's also thrown the kind of post-civil civil rights uh, consensus into the trash bin because he doesn't engage in coded speech every you know he, he doesn't engage in racial dog whistles he just uses a foghorn he makes explicit appeals uh, and those of us who were telling people we were screaming from the top of our lungs that the undercurrent of the tea party was this kind of racial animus was this kind of backwater white nationalism and now that it has metastasized and then trump put his label on it we, we want to throw our hands up and say oh my god what is all of this and try to put it at the feet of donald trump no what what this is, Brian, is is the serpent that has been underneath our politics for so long, now clearly out in the open. We have to look the ugliness of who we are squarely in the face, and to do so, we will require us to imagine us being otherwise. And that's going to begin November 6th, but it's not going to end November 6th. We've got to do something every single day. That's, that's the point. Charlie, you want to pick up on anything there? Well, there's there's no question. There's a lot of truth there, and uh, Andy, Eddie and I have talked about this in in the past. Um, I guess what I would suggest, though, is that it, you know the racism, particularly on the part of the Republican Party, has always been there. It's been a reality. It's been something that they've had to deal with. But until Trump, I I characterize it as a recessive gene. And let me explain what I mean by that. <laughs> the, yes, Donald Trump, you know, is the president of the United States, and you see the way the Republican Party has is is behaving these days. But this was a choice. It was not inevitable because the Republican Party is also people like Jack Kemp. It's also people like John McCain. It is also folks uh, that that tried to turn this party into a more inclusive, more aspirational movement. And I, I think that the, the the real danger of seeing Trump as just this logical, organic product of, of the conservative movement is that it actually normalizes him, that, that in fact it doesn't recognize that there is another tradition out there, which also makes the Republican acquiescence and enabling of Donald Trump so disappointing. Because there are folks that understand how ugly this is, how dangerous this is. But unfortunately, they've either not found their voice or they haven't found their backbone to do anything about it. Though so I saw your recent post mm -hmm. um, as an anti-Trump conservative where you took issue with a line of thinking on the left that Donald Trump was the inevitable result of republicanism mm -hmm. or conservatism itself created the conditions of his rise. You built this, you wrote, is a nagging refrain on social media. Uh, that might get an interesting conversation going around this table, and I think many listeners would be interested in hearing your views on that idea. What is that argument in some, in some detail? Because I think Eddie was just laying out kind of the opposite, which is that as a recessive um, Gene, uh, you know, the the racist conversation in America since the 60s had gone kind of gone into code, and now Trump has made it explicit again. But this was building in, in I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it sounds like this is has been building in Republicanism. 
Well, it's been building, um, obviously, in the culture for some time, and I certainly don't deny that. In fact, one of the shocks for someone like uh, me, you know, right, right about it in, you know, How the Right Lost Its Mind, is you realize that perhaps we did not understand what the conservative movement was really about. We ignored too many things. We dismissed people as, you know, perhaps uh, you were just the loudmouth at the end of the bar or your, your bigoted uncle at Thanksgiving. You just assumed that they would never come to be the dominant voice, which, of course, they have. But I also think if we're ever going to get out of this, we have to have a coalition of the decent, you know, people from the center right and the center left to go, okay, you know, what do we have in common? What are we if we speak out and we reject the this this nativist uh, xenophobic uh, take and also recognize that there are decent people on the right who did not go along with this and who do not. If the argument is that everyone who's a conservative, every Republican, um, is basically a Trumpist, I think it ignores the nuances any more than saying, you know, Adlai Stevenson or you know Herbert Hoover is the same as Che Guevara. I mean, nuances matter. Uh, uh, guys like Ben Sass are not the same as Steve King, and John McCain was clearly not Donald Trump. Alexis, do you want to get in on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that that there's absolutely merit to the fact that there are very vocal anti-Trump or conservatives, but I don't think the argument is that all Republicans and all conservatives are Trumpists. It's that the um, lo-fi racism that Professor Glaude has written about so eloquently, certainly, uh, you know, Reagan's welfare queen, Willie Horton, etc., that was always there. And the question here, and I say this as somebody, you know, I wrote a column this week about how, as somebody on the left, there are problems within my own faction, um, a, a failure to have been consistently vocal about that coded racism as it's existed for decades longer um, is in fact part of the procession of events that have led us to this um, hellscape we're living in. <laughs> Who wants to keep going? Yeah, I mean, you, <laughs> Eddie. You know, I, I think, I, you know, I want to I insist, I think Alexis is absolutely right, and Charlie, I want to I say that Charlie's insistence on, on nuance is really important here. Part of what I'm trying to I think we have to do is to kind of uh, is to not exceptionalize Trump, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just simply normalize him, Charlie, but to exceptionalize him. When we exceptionalize him, then he becomes the bearer of our sins, right? He becomes the object of the he becomes the sole object of the problem, right? We identify the problem as him, and then those who support him. I think Trump sits in this sweet spot between the loud bigots, uh, the loud racist. The soft bigotry of, of, of white liberals and, 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 and good-hearted conservatives, conservatives, and I think the contradictions of American capitalism. He sits right there. People are working their behinds off to make ends meet. And we just seen a study, just even though we've seen the 3.7% increase in wages, uh, we still know that people are, are working harder and can't make their make ends, can't live a middle middle class existence in some in, in some ways, right? And then those folks, those silent, the silent majority, the forgotten Americans, these aren't the loud bigots, but these are the folks who don't want their neighborhoods to change. These are the folks who are gentrifying neighborhoods, who are who want their community spaces to be policed differently. Uh, these are the folks who aren't who will who will decry racism mm -hmm. at every turn, but don't don't really support policies to address ongoing racial inequality. 
And these are some of the folks, along with the loud, loud racists, who are feeling this deep insecurity in relation to the mm-hmm. deep demographic shifts in the country. And that dem- those demographic shifts are rooted, contrary to what David Brooks would say, are rooted in a kind of Christ, what, what Michelle Goldberg would describe as this kind of aggrieved whiteness, right? And, and to the extent to which all of these things come together, Trump then sits right there with that damn smirk on his face, right? Exploiting it all for his own selfish ends. Mm-hmm. And then people can say, well, he's doing his crazy stuff, but my, my, uh, the stock market is doing well in my For you, Eddie, and, well. and you, Alexis, mm-hmm. is it important for the left to understand aggrieved whiteness, to use that phrase, and not just denounce it? Eddie? Oh, I understand it intimately. You see what I mean? I spend my day, you know, this is James Baldwin's point. I got to understand aggrieved whiteness because I got to raise my kid. I mean, he's a grown man now. Aggrieved whiteness is dangerous, Brian. You know, I, I come yes. out of a tradition where folks have been put in the ground because of aggrieved whiteness. And so I'm always being told that I have to pay attention to what's happening to white folks in, in, in the rural, rural rural America. We need to understand their their circumstance. I don't see anything different. I don't know what the adjective is doing when mm-hmm. I'm talking about workers who are catching hell. And aggrieved. people who are trying Sorry, go ahead. and when you say white workers, I don't know what the difference is there. Right? When I'm talking about people who are who are working at McDonald's for less than uh, a living wage, whether it's black, white, green, purple, or yellow, I don't know what white worker is doing. I don't know what aggrieved whiteness means outside of a particular set outside outside of well, I do know what it means outside of a particular ideological frame, but I have to be attentive to it. Alexis um, let me understand the question. You, do I think it's important for people on the left it, to understand, not just in order to combat it? Oh, oh, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. of course. I think it's impossible otherwise, right? Because it it requires, and, and I do not hold myself out as an expert. To be clear, um, I'm I would say somebody always in process. Or the related aggrieved maleness, which we saw in response oh, to yeah. uh, Kavanaugh. <laughs> well, I do feel maybe I'm more of an expert on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can speak. Uh, whereas I would say on aggrieved whiteness, I, something I'm definitely attuned to and consider myself in process on always. I think aggrieved maleness is, you know, a, a, an intersecting function here of the of the Trump phenomenon, right? Because we see it is both a very much he's, you know, right. I think it was Tanahasi Coates wrote in the Atlantic, oh, you know, a while ago at this point, the, the first white president, right? Donald Trump is the first white president. He's also the first man president in this way. Uh, that's not not that we, of course, we've always had white presidents. We've always had presidents who are male. We've never had <laughs> a woman president. But the idea that Trump so explicitly um, campaigns to men, for men, as a man mm-hmm. running to represent maleness. And in some ways, the mm-hmm. Trump presidency is this apotheosis of um, aggrieved mm-hmm. maleness. And mm-hmm. we, you know, in the very strange White House Oval Office meeting between Trump and Kanye West, where West made explicit that he felt like more of a man because of Trump, mm-hmm. that he had had you know was connecting to that power. Um, that is uh, that is not a an argument uh, for women. That's an argument for patriarchy and and white patriarchy very explicitly. Charlie, well, a, a couple of things. Um, you know, Eddie's, Eddie's point about uh, the exceptionalism not not to exceptionalize Donald Trump is exactly right. That's why I try to focus on. You know, Donald Trump is a symptom of a lot of things that were going on, right. um, and you know what he's done to the culture and what the culture has transformed. I think is is, is crucial. But this issue of of aggrieved white males, um, 
you know, one of the things that I think you have to step back and realize that, you know, that, you know, why would they act out in this particular way? Why would you go for Donald Trump? Were there healthier alternatives here? This is where thought leadership is important. You know, I know a lot of uh, blue collar white men, you know, and, and white men from rural America, and they became convinced that the country no longer was listening to them that the country was demonizing them, was looking down on them, was condescending to them, that maleness was, you know, that it was uh, passe. And as a result of that, when Donald Trump, the uber male came along, they felt this was the first guy that was talking to them. Now, I'm not obviously defending Donald Trump and I'm not defending, you know, many of the positions, but it is important to understand you know, look, these are people who for generations voted for progressives and Democrats. And mm -hmm. over time, they began to think, you are not paying attention to me. You do not respect me. You are not listening to me. You don't even like me. And so this is one of those things that I would think that, you know, you know, we use the term, you know, angry white men a lot. Until 2016, nobody asked, well, what are they angry about? And are there some legitimate angers? Now, when you have a Donald Trump come along, he said, you should be angry because these black people are coming, these brown people are coming, and they're going to rape your women, they're going to take your jobs. He exploited that, but he also was able to exploit it because no one else was talking to them in a way that was connecting. Alexis, you look like you want to respond. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the priority placed on understanding aggrieved white men to me feels perhaps misplaced here in that I wish um, the, the, the certain, certainly the tantrum that we uh, experienced in 2016, this backlash to the um, uh, mounting rhetoric and policy changes meant to favor, uh, not, 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 not favor, I should say, but to bring uh, previously marginalized people uh, more into the conversation or and offer a more level playing field was perceived as a loss by WNYC white men who are, of course, um, longtime beneficiaries of a unearned amount of privilege. So that loss of privilege, um, I understand having thought about it and read a lot of books about it at this point, uh, made people very upset. But having that I don't. I don't quite know what to say when it's when it's a person who feels that well, these people of color and women are getting jobs that they didn't earn that I'm entitled to. To explain, you're not entitled to anything. It's it's hard to undo centuries of of privilege. I guess. We're almost okay, but here's a, here's here. I guess I, I need to push it back on this. It, if you are an unemployed blue collar worker in your fifties and your town is in, in a depression, when you are told that you are privileged, it's not going to play the way you think. And again, I think that's that true. everybody needs to figure out how do you appeal to the better angels of people's nature? Because otherwise, you're going to have the Trumpists come along and they're going to find some other to blame. I so think Charlie. you're right about language. Oh, I, would, sorry, I, I, I would just really quickly say before Professor Claude jumps in here that you're right, that the language of explaining to somebody who is on, you know, um, barely holding on that they're privileged is uh, ineffective. Eddie? Yeah, I mean, so look, this is this is the thing. Um what what what's interesting to me, Charlie and Alexis, is is the way in which people reach for a kind of racial identity to account for their for their mm -hmm. circumstance, right? For the fact that people are that the Democratic Party is no longer paying attention to them. So imagine at the moment in which unions are being marginalized and losing power, and 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 
work blue collar white workers in in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or in in in, in Pascagoula, Mississippi, feel like uh, uh, they're they're being left behind. Uh, you have uh, uh, the base of the another base of the Democratic Party, black voters, for example, who are being taken for granted. Right. So you can think about uh, you know Clinton's triangulation or, or how what what happens when the Democratic Party turns from looking to unions and black folk to looking to to to, to Silicon Valley and Wall Street as a source of revenue streams, right? So there's a way in which uh, we can talk about workers across the board, white, black, brown, purple, yellow, whatever, whomever, catching help because we've seen in so many interesting sorts of ways uh, a certain class of folk take control over the country. Mm-hmm. Right? And I mean a certain kind of economic reality that has devastated mm-hmm. workers across the board. But in, the, in that moment, instead of us looking that way, looking towards the top, these folk, and then we get hit with we're engaging in class warfare in that moment. But instead of looking that way, we look across and say, these are the people who are taking, taking stuff from me because we view racial equality or whatever as a zero-sum game, as opposed to all of us are catching hell because you have folks who are greedy on the top getting, getting more, while those of us who are working harder and longer for less and can't afford to send our kids. And that's happening whether you're in Harlem. Well, Harlem looks different now. <laughs> whether, you're in, in a black, whether you're in a black or brown, neighborhood, predominantly black brown neighborhood or you're a blue-collar neighborhood. So part of what, what I'm trying to get at is the way in which our politicians have exploited this racial divide. Because there's this fundamental assumption, Charlie and Alexis, I believe, that the country is, is, is a white nation in the vein of old Europe. Mm-hmm. And when whiteness is in crisis, and we can articulate, we can unpack what we mean by that at another time. But when it's in, at another time, when whiteness is in crisis, not only do we see black folk catching hell, we see Jews catching hell because in that moment they get marked as outsiders as well. And then we find our, and then we see people exploiting it for their own selfish interests. And unfortunately, that, that is going to have to be. For oh, I'm sorry, because <laughs> we are out of time. time. You Charlie. did not take too much oh, time. It was so good. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank I think you. everybody got their say, and uh, this was. Um, so good that I hope the three of you will come back another time and will continue the conversation. So we thank Eddie Glaude, chair of Princeton's new Department of African American Studies and author of books including Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, Charlie Sykes, contributing editor at the Weekly Standard and MSNBC, and author of How the Right Lost Its Mind, now out in paperback, and Alexis Grinnell, co-founder of Pythia Public, a political and public affairs firm and frequent contributor to the Daily News, including her article this week, Farrakhan's words matter too. It's about time the left universally denounced his anti-Semitism. Thank you so much for putting a big period, or maybe it was an exclamation point on our 30 <laughs> issues in 30 days series. Thank, Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you Brian. so much. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.